Welcome to the Humanise the Numbers podcast series. Leaders, managers and owners of ambitious accounting firms sharing insights, successes and issues that will challenge you and connect you and your firm to the ways and means of transforming your firm's results. In the 30 some odd years I've been doing this, I'm happy to report we've won this war. McKinsey and Bain and Company and Accenture no longer do timesheets. We've called this edition of the podcast series the Timesheet Tussle. And if we're going to talk timesheets, it pays, it makes sense, don't you think, to get the world's expert on trashing the timesheet involved. And so I'm proud and privileged to say we have got Ronald J. Baker joining us today on this podcast. Now, Ron started his CPA career in 1984 with KPMG's Private Business Advisory Services in San Francisco. Today, he is the founder of Verisage Institute, the leading think tank dedicated to educating professionals internationally. He's also a radio talk show host on www.voiceamerica.com with his show, The Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy. Stay with us to the end of the podcast and you'll hear Ron signpost a handful of specific shows that are relevant to the discussion we're about to have on this podcast. Ron has also authored seven best-selling books, including The Firm of the Future, Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, my personal favourite, and Implementing Value Pricing. He's also toured the world, spreading his value pricing message to over 250,000 professionals. He's been named on Accounting Today's Top 100 Most Influential People in the Profession, 2001, 2007 and 2011 to 2020, and inducted into the CPA Practice Advisor Hall of Fame in 2018. He's a faculty member of the Professional Pricing Society, and he presently lives in Petaluma, California, but he's with us today on the Humanise the Numbers podcast. Joining Ron and myself are three director owner of three different firms, Luke, John and Nigel, and we're going to get them to introduce themselves now. Let's start with Luke. Yeah, so uh, my name is Luke Smith. I have a firm of uh, 12 people in Jersey in the Channel Islands called Purpose. Um, there's two directors in that firm. There's um, 38 monthly uh, FPAs, fixed price agreements, and turnover a little over a million pounds um, a year. In terms of uh, my journey with timesheets, so um, back in 2007, I left um, industry having trained um, with KPMG, ex-audit, and um, bought into a local practice. Used to do timesheets to the penny, got very excited about it every month with 12 to 15 staff members going through that process. Um, met Steve Pipe and Paul Dunn in um, 2011, and then went on a journey of discovery, um, read Firm of the Future, implementing value pricing, pricing on purpose, measure what matters, the goal, absolute certainty, e-myth, <laughs> uh, strategy in the fat smoker, the whole, the whole, everything by Vital Smart, you know, the whole lot. Um, and um, stopped doing timesheets straight after that. Moved everybody on to fixed price, went very well for a very long time um, with that. Um, and um, yeah, we just, we just um, implemented a new job management system, which has the ability to track time, but not put charge out rates in. You can't put any financial information into okay. it. Um, and so that's where we are with Great. that. Thanks, Luke. Thanks. John, how about you? Yeah, hi. Um, so my name's John Hillier. Um, 
I'm a director and owner um, with another four equity owners of a firm called Condi Matthias, based down in um, Devon in the West Country. Uh, we've got a team of 30 people working for us across two offices. Uh, business clients, uh, I did a quick look-see on our database earlier, which has 600 instances, although I freely admit it does need a bit of housekeeping. Um, <laughs> that's another, another thing on the list of things to do. Total fees, if we hit target by the end of March, it'll be 1.7 uh, million, which will be an increase, we hope, of 6, 6.5% 6 over last year. Brilliant. In terms of the timesheets journey, um, I think I'm probably a bit earlier in the journey than Luke is, um, although I, have, I, I, I am an avid devotee of value pricing. Um, I've been uh, re I've been I've been using value pricing um, extremely successfully with uh, one-off project work and new clients, and um, you know, I've had some tremendous success with that. Mm. So I've been pra you know been practicing that for maybe four or five years, um, and I realise now that you know timesheets or the trashing of timesheets might be a another logical step on that journey. Right. Um, the, the whole issue of timesheets in the firm um, came indirectly from a conversation I had with one of my, my business partners a few weeks ago, uh, wherein I, I was suggesting that we ought to be billing all our clients in advance, getting them set up on direct debits. Um, so, you know, just, just to improve the cash flow of the firm. Um, and one of my business partners pushed back and said, um, that'll just expletive up our <laughs> internal accounting and cause us lots more work, which I just see as a system issue. You know, we could just, we could sort that by working out what to do about, about it. Um, and if we did that, the conversation then went on to, well, why do we need timesheets if we Agreeing quotes in advance, yeah, yeah, uh, billing in advance. There's no need to to bother with timesheets anymore, and um, we wouldn't end up with whip in our accounts, which is a you know based on these arbitrary charge out rates that we that we use. Um, yeah, so that's that's really where I've got to on the issue. Brilliant, thanks, John. Okay, yeah, yeah, marvelous. Thank you very much, Nigel. Do you want to give us your backstory? Um, okay, um, I'm Nigel Bennett, I'm the chairman of Holidays Group Limited. I was the managing director for about 15 years. Um, I stepped down from the role as managing director to become chairman to become the COO of um, Zanadin Group Limited, uh, which is um, a group of about 100 accountancy firms that turns over about 100 million. Um, and um, I'm busy trying to extricate myself from that role, <laughs> which hopefully will happen in two weeks, um, uh, as I'm actually working beyond my uh, retirement date um, for various reasons. Um, my timesheet journey probably started, um, it, it started initially with um, um, looking at 
the clients that uh, Halliday's worked for who were essentially compliance clients and we were providing a compliance service um, and we were focusing internally on ourselves and I think that's something that Timesheets makes you do and I wanted to find a way of driving the business towards delivering things that matter to clients and not what mattered to accountants. Um, so um, I looked around for a piece of software in the external market to replace timesheets. There wasn't anything, um, so we wrote something that um, measured the speed that people do jobs um, and uh, measured things, um, tasks that we think were more relevant um, and uh, mattered more to clients. Um, that um, actual process of, of giving the timesheets up as part of that was, I wasn't really thinking about giving um, timesheets up, but the actual um, um, catalyst for giving timesheets up was uh, a presentation given by a certain Ron Baker. Uh, I think it was East, East Midlands Airport. <laughs> I think he'd flown over from America. Um, I think it's about 20 years ago. I couldn't tell you exactly when. You look exactly the same age, Ron, by the way. Right after 2001, <laughs> 9-11? Was that it? Around then, yes, it was. Wow. Okay. Wow. I remember um, uh, that. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, that's what uh, I thought. I, you know, we don't really need timesheets. Uh, we surveyed the team with one or two exceptions out of then about 40 people. Hmm. Um, there was... <laughs> wild enthusiasm at the team level for getting rid of timesheets and less so at the senior team level yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah brilliant. and we've been on that journey since um, we've never thought of uh, of uh, going back um, my only um, thing to say is if you are going to um, get rid of timesheets you don't you need to make sure there's something else there to replace them before yeah, you I just stick them in the bin that's it that, that's interesting nigel so yeah. but we're going to bring ron in in a second so luke you're looking at Reinstigating uh, timesheets. What, what it, if you would just share? What is it that's prompting that? And then we'll bring Ron in to um, uh, chew, chew that one over and hopefully spit it out again. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think there's, there's, there's sort of two two big things, and I don't know if they're specific to to our organisation. But the first one is um, deadline stress and pressure. So we've got about ten people. We've got about forty clients. Like I said, on average, those 40 clients have three or four organization entities, businesses that they're running and we're doing consolidations, etc. Every month we're churning out those 140 sets of accounts and 30 board meetings. And what we're doing there is whilst we're applying um, what I would call knowledge work to the board meetings and, and assisting the clients, we are a factory for management accounting and we've got a lot going on in terms of um, you know, pretty strong processes through zero and zero work papers. Um, and what we're finding is that our estimates of how long we think people should take to do things are not matching um, reality because we're, we're missing deadlines um, on a fairly regular basis. And therefore, we, uh, and the junior team members are saying, well, this is how long it takes. And we're saying, well, we don't understand why, why that's the case yeah. and they don't know what they're taking longer on or not so that's that's one part of it and then the extra part of it is most of the clients we work with um, either day some are daily and and most the rest of them are weekly so we're heavily involved in their business we're an outsourced finance function yeah and that means you get loads of requests all the time for things that are not in the box in terms of you know what a fixed price agreement would say um, quite a lot of those things are one or hours two hours here or there 
Um, going through a change order process is um, would take longer than actually doing the thing, or if it wouldn't, you didn't know at the start before you tried to help the client out to do that thing, that it's actually going to take half a day and then you start missing deadlines and, yeah. and everything sort of falls over. We also don't have a group of people who are comfortable talking about price with anybody. So none of the accountants want to, they, they know these people very well, they work with them every day, and they don't feel comfortable talking about money, um, and they don't really have an incentive to do that, and they wouldn't want to do that. So those are the, because of the way that we're set up, hmm. you know, 25 to 30,000 pounds average fee um, across a small number of very close clients, we think that we just need to have more visibility of what the team is doing. Mm. Having a project, bringing in a project manager or an ops manager to just watch them doesn't put, none of them wanted that. So they've actually welcomed back to putting their timesheets in and reviewing them. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Okay. And only the junior staff are doing it, the managers aren't. You might say, well, there's less value there because we don't know the overall time on the job, mm. but ultimately the more junior members of staff are, are, are actually quite comfortable saying how long things are taking them. Okay, okay. So, Ron, how do you want to respond to Luke? Have you got questions you want to clarify things on or do you want to dive in? Well, I just... It, it, all, all of these things that we've talked about that I've heard all of you say, all, all the defences of timesheets revolve around four issues, period. In, in my whole 30 years of trying to destroy this thing and give it the death penalty, I've heard four defenses of timesheets. One, we need them for pricing. I think it's safe to say all of you on this call do not believe that. Is that fair? Yeah, I agree. Okay, as Socrates said, he who says A must say B. Um, the second reason is we need them to track the efficiency of our team members. How, how would I know whether or not team member A spent longer than team member B on a certain job? How would I know if they were a good accountant? Um, you know, the whole what you can measure, you can manage. Third is, we need them for cost accounting. Otherwise, how in the world do you figure out customer profit? How in the world would you figure out job profit or hourly profit? And the fourth defense is we need them for project management. If I don't know how long it takes, you know, we have budgets of projected time into the future, which Verisage is okay with. We're, we're not saying eliminate time. We're saying view it as what it really is. Time is a constraint. It's not a cost. It has nothing to do with value. It's just a constraint. We can project time into the future. What I'm against is the fetidization of taking that projected time and comparing it to actual after the fact. What's the point? <laughs> the damage has been done. We're all sitting here crying over spilt milk. Mm. So I think we have nuked these four issues. They're, they're blown out of the sky. It, it, you know, the timesheet came into the professions in the United States of America first, from what I can tell. In 1919, in a law firm in Boston, Massachusetts, heavily inspired by this guy named um, Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was an absolute fraud in his whole scientific management thing. And my question is, has the world changed 
mm. in 102 years. It, not even that. Forget the technology. Forget the software that we have at our fingertips now, the apps, the whole ecosystem. of. Forget all that. What about our thinking? Has our thinking evolved in 102 years? Mm. Might we have better processes than looking at something that's after the fact? Of course we do. Mm. We've just been ignoring it. I have the magic solution for what replaces timesheet. It's not magic, though, and it's not easy. I'm not saying any of this is simple. But I have never advocated just get rid of the timesheet. We've always tried to replace it with superior systems or processes, mm. whatever you want to call it, that were more attuned to focusing on results rather than inputs. I don't care about inputs. It's like the old Soviet Union. You know, give them a quota, tell them to build 100 pounds of nails, and they build one giant one, <laughs> right? I mean, they hit the quota, but it's not valuable to anyone. So uh, I'll just I'll start there. And then I'll also give everybody encouragement and say, in, in the 30-some-odd years I've been doing this, I'm happy to report we've won this war. Mm. McKinsey and Bain and & Company and Accenture no longer do timesheets. Mm. Now, they do a lot of knowledge work that's highly what we call, we make a distinction between magic and logic work. You know, the routine, I think you were talking about it, Paul, the routine, or Luke, um, the routine work, the predictable work, um, that's the logic work. The magic work is the creativity, the ideation, the innovation, the R&D. These guys do both. A lot of advertising agencies like Ogilvy and Mather do both. A lot of those folks have also gotten rid of timesheets. And they did this hand-in-hand -hand with value pricing because I posit to you that the only reason we're so attached to the timesheet is because it's be it was part of our business model for so long. We sell time. Mm. Well, we're no longer selling time under a value pricing model, which is a change in a business model. And when you change a business model, two things happen. At least two things happen. One, you always change the pricing uh, strategies. So Airbnb does not use the same pricing strategy as Hilton or Marriott. And the second thing that changes is the metrics, the, the internal dashboards, the KPIs, if you will, what we look at. And I can assure you that Airbnb does not have the same dashboard as Hilton or Marriott. They, have, they look at different metrics. And we need different metrics in a value pricing firm from an hourly firm. Mm. There's no place for a timesheet in a value pricing firm. So I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. And <laughs> All right. So, Luke, um, before we were joined with Ron, you, 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 we were talking about this difference between the, 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 what Ron calls the, the logic work and the magic work. You, you were talking about the factory work versus the advisory work. Is there a specific question you've got for Ron that relates to your issue? about getting back to timesheets? Yeah, well, I, I, I think um, in, t in terms of, you know, optimal strategies, if you're a firm of 10 to 12 people, you have a different resource than Accenture and the others. And there is a lot of work to be done around, you know, value, chief value officers and pricing councils and all, all those things mm. that you can afford to do if you're bigger and you can take away and have more people do more that you know you know all the different roles and have different personality types and all that stuff mm. i think at a at a small level when the vast majority of the industry continues to 
effectively churn statutory accounts and management accounts out. Um, whilst the milk has been spilled, history does repeat itself on a regular basis. And, and, and I know that because it, it has again this morning with somebody upset. So, you, you know, there, there is things to be learned from, from history. And yes, there are ways of managing those processes that are different. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I sort of having had eight or nine years without knowing at all what's going on in terms of um, how, you know, th this having a way that people will happily just get habitualized getting information into a system. Um, it's been a lot easier and certainly for a lot of clients, you know, we've they, a lot of clients that we work with, when we have introduced a system into their business, they make more profit the next two or three months after because they just don't have visibility and it's an easier way of doing it. It's a cheaper, easier way yeah. of identifying lost revenue. Yeah. So I guess the question is, is there a bite point at which you're big enough to implement, you know, wholesale this, this, this change? And is there an argument at a lower level to understand if you're not doing the magic, you know, mm. and I completely get that. Is there, is there, is there a point there where, you know, it's still worth knowing or not, or not? Okay. All right. I'm going to get Ron to answer that. And then I'm going to come to you, Nigel, to actually respond to that as well, if I can. Ron. Well, you know, it's interesting. This whole revolution started in small firms, solos, two partner, three partner, four partner, I could never get the big firms to talk about it. Mm. And, We've heard every excuse in the book why it can't be done, and they're all contradictory. Oh, well, that's easy for them. They're a small firm. They can do it. That's what the big four would tell me. You go to a, you go to a small firm, and they say, well, that's easy for the big guys because they have more resources, da-da-da-da-da. Mm. You know, that's easy for you. You're, you're west of the Atlantic. I'm east of the Atlantic. That's easy for you. Your partners drive bigger cars than our, you know. We've heard every excuse in the book for this, and the fact is it's applicable to all size firms. I think the smaller you are, the easier it is to implement. But let me just say, what, what replaces timesheets? Well, obviously value pricing. It sounds like you're all doing that, fixed price agreements, whatever. Obviously, you know, I'm a big advocate of a value counsel or a chief value officer. I don't think partners should price their own work. I think, you know, why authors and actors have agents um, is because those agents get them a better price. We all suck at selling ourselves. We need to own up to that and realize it. And a lot of the problems, especially with these small change orders, one hour, two hour, half day here and there, is we wimped out on the price to begin with, right? We always overestimate uh, how quick we can get something done. And that's just, that's not a sign of bad project management. It's a sign of bad pricing, if anything. It also could be a sign of too many customers. The other thing is we need to we need to do better at capacity and cash flow modeling and we need proper project management and look I do a radio show with Ed Kless from Sage and this guy is a certified project manager PMI Institute you know he's got the certificates this has been his whole life and he says if you think that real project management is looking at timesheets and arrears you're kidding yourself Project managers have to worry about projecting capacity into the future, not looking backwards. Um, the other thing is key predictive indicators. You know, I have a list of favorite KPIs, but here's the big one. And Luke, I think this would solve your problem. I really do. Uh, well, let me say this. I think it would be a better system than going back to timesheets. 
I don't like the word solution because I don't think there are solutions. I think there's only trade-offs. Implement after-action reviews because after-action reviews actually give you context. Every There's a reason every military unit around the globe uses this process. And it's a series of four simple questions. The Army has very strict guidelines. I've read the... I've read what uh, your army does, my army, the Canadian army, the Israeli army. Uh, they all call these things different things, but <clears throat> it's four questions. What was supposed to happen on this engagement? What actually happened on this engagement? The ground truth is the, you know, like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until you're hit in the face. <laughs> so there's always a difference between what you planned, what the objectives were, and what actually happened out there in the ground. You know, you met the enemy. Why or what did we learn from those from those deviations from what was expected to happen? You know, there were positive things out of that. There were probably negative things. And how could we do better next time? I've got a one page after action review agenda that we kind of took the Army's uh, formal agenda and tweaked it for a knowledge firm. And I'm happy to send this to you, Paul. And, you. and it's up on our show notes as well. We've got a whole show dedicated to what we call this the best learning tool ever. You're only supposed to spend 50 minutes on this. And, you know, I'm not saying do it on every single customer that you have. Maybe do it on a group of customers or a group of projects or after a particular busy season. Certainly do it on the top 20% of your customers that generate 80% of your revenue. But do it mm -hmm. because this thing is more contextual than looking at a timesheet. If I look at a timesheet and say, Luke... We projected you were sp to spend 20 hours on that, and you spent 40. That doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't give me any context. Why? Well, maybe the customer came in, and you had to hold their hand or comfort them or you know, explain something really difficult. I mean, there could be a million reasons why something goes over or under budget. Mm -hmm. And just looking at a timesheet doesn't give you any context, none. There's no knowledge gained from looking at the timesheet. There's tremendous knowledge capture from doing the after-action review, especially if you do it uh, quickly after an engagement, you know, don't you have to do these quick? And and it is a big cultural change. Paul Kennedy and his firm, O'Byrne and Kennedy, over there, longtime Verisage colleague, they got rid of timesheets in 2003. In fact, uh, Nigel it was after that same post 2001 event that we did that I think you were at. Uh, where they sat in the lobby of that hotel and figured out a plan to get rid of timesheets, which they ultimately did. At the same time, around the same time, they in implemented after-action reviews, and it propelled their firm tremendously because now they could really understand why, where the system breakdowns were, where where why things were taking longer than they thought. How could they do it faster? Some things they eliminated because they figured out that there's they're not adding any value. They're just you know. We're only doing this for the department of paperwork in our firm. There's no value here mm. for the customer. So I think the after action review goes a long way. And I'm stunned how many professional firms don't use it. Yeah. Luke, you looked as though you were twitching a bit about whether timesheets were well, was actually it, contextual. It, it, it would help me. I'm, I'm not going to, we're not going to spend 40 minutes on 40 engagements. It's just, it, it would take a week to, to work it out. So how do you prioritize? Which ones you? Because I agree. Well, you're going to spend a lot, a lot of time doing timesheets and inputting well, them and reviewing well, them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, not proportionately. I, I think um, you know how do we how do we prioritize which ones we do? Because it's a valid point. We don't do it enough, and we should do it. Twenty top twenty eighty rule. Do, yeah. Do, so how do, do I pick, do, pick those? How do I pick the ones that go wrong if I don't know which ones go wrong? Then do the ones that go wrong first. 
but they don't know which ones they are because we haven't got visibility of that. So that's what I'm saying, how do you prioritise which ones you pick? Even if you don't have timesheets, Luke, your team knows which ones have gone wrong. Your team knows, Luke. I mean, yeah. just like, I, I bet uh, if I asked you who your star team members are and who, I'm not going to say duds, but you know what I mean, just a ranking. <laughs> just, uh, no, they don't uh, know who they are. They know okay, they are. But, but you do. And, and the thing is, yeah. you, you have that, you know that just through judgment. It's not a measurement, you know. Knowledge work isn't isn't about measurement. It's about judgment. I, I can't I can't measure another surgeon's ability. I have to judge it if I'm a surgeon, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's the same with knowledge workers. Um, you know who the good ones are, just and they know who the bad customers are. Mm. Without I mean, looking okay, at any data, we'll, we'll give we'll give that a go. Uh, you know, if you you know, Luke, if you say you've got forty jobs and you just did one job a week with that after action review, you know, by the time you get to the end of the year, you, you're cycling round again and, and you're looking yeah, to yeah, the no, job I, again. I, so. I, it's we we should we should be doing more of it. I think I think the the energy involved in the next thing and getting things done. Yeah. Is is you know they just they just everybody is under a, a lot of pressure on a regular basis and in terms of sort of being cheap on the price I mean we're we're asking people to pay six or seven times what they paid their previous accountant and it's it's not an easy sell so you know it it's how do we you know Paul I talked to you before about how we're splitting the service up between the magic and the the logic a bit more going forward and that will help but. Um, yeah, we'll, 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 I'll, I'll ask them who they hate working for and why, and then I guess that's the, the best way of prioritising yeah, yeah, yeah. prioritizing which jobs to do. Make yeah. it a yeah. Christmas bonus that they all get <laughs> one, one customer. <laughs> yeah. Now, now yeah. Nigel, what, what are your further thoughts about Luke's uh, issue and challenge? Um, I think there's probably two um, things that I'd say. I'll think one thing that I think is a generality about the accountants and the type of people who end up running accounting firms um, another one is about how we um, manage profitability in our firm which might help and um, so uh, first of all um, um, when things go wrong in in accounting practices professional services firms the people at the top of the firms tend to want to manage in detail the issues whether it's a person issue or whether it's a job issue and the fact of the matter is that um, although Luke has probably got issues with clients and issues with um, team members, probably 95% of the jobs and 95% of the team, 95% of the time, are actually doing fine. And we have a tendency to introduce systems that apply to 100% of the clients and 100% of the team instead of managing the 5% that aren't working. Um, and um, that is never a good thing, in my opinion. You are actually um, saying to your your team who are working effectively, um, I don't trust you. Mm. Okay, that's what you're saying to them. Um, um, and it, it is, it, it's, an, it's an abdication of responsibility, in my opinion, at a management level to do that, because what you should be doing is, ma is managing the individual issues that are arising at a, a, a client. If it's the fault of the client, of scope creep that you should describe, you need to talk to the clients, okay? Not introduce a system that applies to all clients. Um, if you've got a problem with a team member, everybody knows who the problem team members are, by the way, and they know the stars. You don't. You, you sit there, you must know who they are, Luke. Um, and, and if you don't know, go and ask your managers, they know. And if they don't know, go and ask the secretaries, because they know as well. <laughs> um, 
But um, in terms of, so that's one thing that I think applies to massive swathes of the profession and I think it's a, partly a problem with the type of people who are attracted to the profession and the way the profession is portrayed, portrayed by the bodies who, uh, you know, the institutes and things like that. They're, they're a bit stuffy, they attract people who, I'm not suggesting we're all like this, because we're on this call, obviously we're not. But the, the, the profession is, is full of these people who have a certain profile and part of that profile is, um, is wanting to do things in a, in a, in a, in a certain highly system, systemised way and micromanage people in, uh, through mm. that process and I don't think that is a, a good way of mo uh, running a modern firm and it's certainly not a good way for the younger generations who um, want to be managed. They do not expect to be managed, managed in that way mm. and they want greater free, freedom. I like the football analogy that you use, uh, Paul, so you can probably drop that in, uh, in later. It's a great analogy of how I think you should manage, uh, manage um, people. Mm. We're control um, freaks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think the, the, go on, Nigel. The, the, the second, um, I just thought I'd tell you how um, we manage um, um, sort of profit in the firm. So um, we break, we um, have different teams in the firm. So they, a, a team might be um, somewhere between eight hundred thousand and a million. So maybe not um, too dis dissimilar from uh, um, from you, Luke. Um, so it, you know, if you add a couple of them together. Um, and um, the, 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 you, as I said, you, you, you've got to put things in that uh, the, uh, surround removing timesheets. It's not just, oh, we'll get rid of timesheets, and Ron said that as well. So you have to introduce a culture um, into the team um, and honesty and transparency about what you're going on. And, and, and part of that is, is monitoring the, the team based on profitability. Um, so um, as long as I know, I know broadly that the, um, the, the direct costs of, uh, and the, t the turnovers on target and the direct costs are around about 30%, um, I know how that, that team is doing. I don't really know to, need to know anything else from, from a, a profitability uh, perspective. I don't care if one of the jobs is more profitable and one of them is less. One of the team members cots up and, and one of them didn't. Actually, within the team, they have, uh, they have um, monthly meetings um, and they go through that stuff in detail. And if there's a particular problem, a person we go to preview review meetings and manage the individual person that the problem's with. Mm. Um, uh, so um, I think that that's um, the other side to that is that, so if you if you work out what your um, sort of sweet spot is for your your uh, uh, direct costs. Um, if, if you then you see them um, creeping down to the 25% level, um, and then I'm not doing them now because I'm the chairman, but when I, I would have the monthly meetings with the, the team leaders, and if the, the, the um, direct costs are creeping down to 25%, I'll be talking to them about efficiencies. Are you having uh, are you having difficulty getting jobs out the door? Are you difficulty hitting hitting deadlines? Is the stress in your team? Is the team happiness going down? Um, which are kind of different metrics from what you um, might otherwise think you'd be measuring. If the, if the uh, direct costs um, um, are going up and getting to 33 34%, I'm having conversations about pricing. I'm having conversations about um, efficiency. You're putting the wrong people on the jobs um, and, and those sort of conversations. And once you... Um, and the uh, one key um, element to, the, to the, that um, uh, sort of profit equation is you have to link salaries to, uh, to, uh, to uh, turnover budgets. So when we, do, when we do the turnover budgets for the following year, um, at the same time, we do the uh, the salary increases. So uh, because when we have them separate, we used to say, okay, um, you know, what uh, what um, turnover increase can you get this year? Oh, I don't think we can get any turnover increase this year. It'll be about the same as last year, maybe a little bit less even. 
Um, and okay, and what about your salaries? What, what salaries are you want? Oh, I think we need to put them by 10%. We need to pay everybody a lot more money. And obviously that makes no, uh, no commercial sense whatsoever. But if you don't allow the team to make that, that link, um, then they don't really understand that. Mm. Um, and one of the, the um, points that you said, um, Luke, was that you didn't think your team wanted to have um, the sort of pricing and expectations uh, meeting. Um, we pushed that down quite, to quite a low level. Um, and actually, if you have um, those sort of dialogues at quite a low level about um, people, uh, you've asked me to do an additional piece of work, and they know that they've got, if it's of any significance, um, they've got to um, basically say there's an additional fee, um, and they've got to come up with some sort of verbal agreement. We don't, um, because we've got good relationships with the client, we don't, uh, you know, sometimes we don't insist they agree a fee. We've just got to get that recognition out there that there's going to be an, an, an additional fee, and the dialogue has, has to happen. But if they know their salary rises are linked to um, the turnover and their turnovers linked to the price increases and making sure that you bill for all of the work, the work that's done, then um, then the, 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 when they do the price renewal conversations, they tend to be on the high side and they tend, you tend to pick up more of the, uh, of the extra work because they know that you know, when it comes to the salary conversations, um, you, know, because we're gonna, you can do this, the turnover calculation quite arithmetically for an accounting firm yeah. based on the previous firm, uh, you know, your, your churn rate, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, so anyway, that's about all I've got to say. No, no, good, <laughs> good. So it, uh, it strikes me that, you know, Ron's kicked it off is there's a com conflict conversation around the, the you know, act after action review. That's one type of conflict conversation. Another is a conflict conversation around the timesheets. Another is what Nigel's just brought up is a conflict conversation around salaries versus turnover. And I know Nigel and I have chewed this over many a time over the years. It's about, you know, the building commerciality knowledge, insight into your team so that they're connecting the dots between their costs and the performance of their role and delivering for the client, which I think is uh, is Nigel's point. So, John, I'm thinking you've got a conflict conversation with your fellow business owners who are resisting, um, you know, taking timesheets out. What, what 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 question do you want to pose to either Ron, Luke, or or, or Nigel? That will help you out. Do you think in that specific conflict conversation? Well, I am very interested in um, just exploring a bit more in a bit more detail about the after action reviews Ron um, a specific question I mean would you would those include looking at the the financial performance of that job so you're taking Nigel's point about the direct costs and some overhead um, would it include a a review to see whether you have actually made a profit or not um, on that job no because I, I I don't think you can compute profit per job profit per customer it's it's undoable and uh, this is the cost accounting defense and cost accounting is awful uh, one of the worst ideas that engineers foisted on mankind uh, accountants didn't come up with it by the way engineers did and I don't know why we're so attached to it but we are um, the fact of the matter is customers and jobs don't have costs firms have costs and trying to allocate your rent and paper clips to every single job is impossible. You're starting to make relationships that, that have no bearing. I mean, if you have an accountant that you're paying a salary to and they spend two more hours on that job than you budgeted, tell me who, who you write the check to. It's not a cash transaction. So it doesn't matter. What matters is pricing and capacity management, project management, uh, and so I'm not worried about profit per job. I, I, Nigel made a reference to like, he looks at the portfolio. 
that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a, a, a group of customers across profit across a portfolio. Now, if we have good good customer onboarding, we only work with customers who who you know adore us and are willing to pay us. Then, you know, worrying about profit per job per customer per hour just goes away. I know I'm going to be profitable if I price it right. Um, so, no, the AAR is a very high level, thirty thousand foot review of the engagement. Um, doesn't I mean you can talk about yeah why did this this particular aspect take longer you know the customer wasn't ready the customer was supposed to give us info, this information and they didn't and therefore we had to sit out there and do you know the, the reconciliations or whatever uh, you can do all that in an after action review but they are just kind of a high level way to capture knowledge and share that knowledge with the rest of the team hmm. um, just one quick story I sat in an ICU ward of a hospital that does an after-action review at the end of every single shift, every eight to 10-hour shift. The two doctors, head doctors, the RNs, the LVNs, all the other medical personnel that work in this ICU life and death situation sit down at the end of every shift, take the chairs, put them in a circle in the middle of the ward, all these sick people around, and they talk about the day's activities, what went right, what went wrong, what could we do better, and they do it every single day. And he let me sit in on one of them. And I'm and I I was just my jaw hit the floor because this guy came out of the military and that's why he implemented them. And I said to him, "What has happened to your lawsuits as a result of doing these?" Is oh, he said they're way down <laughs> because we're constantly improving. And and I sat there through this AAR and I noticed that LVNs and RNs, all these highly dedicated medical personnel, were admitting freely in front of their bosses mistakes they had made, errors they had made, because the AAR is not a gotcha tool. It's not an annual performance review. It's a learning tool to help us improve going forward. And so it's kind of a safe space to admit errors. You know you're not going to be dinged on your promotion, on your annual performance review, if you admit a mistake. And then other people are going to be able to chime in hmm. and say, yeah, you know, when you have to give that patient an IV, you have to do this first, then do that, and then turn them over, and then put the IV in them. And I, and I sat there and watched this dynamic play out. They only spent 30 minutes, but they do it at the end of every shift. I posit to you that's the best 30 minutes you can spend in a knowledge firm. Time spent on reconnaissance, as the military says, is never wasted. Mm -hmm. And we don't spend enough time reflecting on the lessons that we learn from the activities that we perform. Mm -hmm. We just frenetically jump from one activity to the next and never step back and reflect. That would never happen in the army. It would never happen among a, a, gr a group of, uh, you know, like uh, what do you guys have the, over there? The red arrows, you know, they're doing after action reviews at the end of every, uh, you know, air show they every do flight, yeah. usually four to six hours. Mm -hmm. They go over every aspect and you say, well, our team can't afford this or our firm can't afford. You can't afford not to do this mm -hmm. because. It's true knowledge capture and it's true improvement of future performance. This improves future performance. Timesheets do not, period. Mm -hmm. Timesheets are not contextual enough to improve future performance. Brilliant, brilliant. So you'll, you'll know if something took longer than it should and actually having the, the hours recorded um, is, as you say, is irrelevant. Oh, it's just, it took, took, mm -hmm. took longer. Yeah. Um, than it should have done. So we've got to change what we do next time um, to either reduce those hours or 
if we can't reduce those hours, we've got to increase the fee because um, you know, it's mm. taking too long. Um, right. I, I, so the, the actual measurement of those hours, I think you're saying, is, is just completely irrelevant. It, it's just it, What you're doing when you come into it, and, and look, I work in a, I'm the chief value officer of a top 22, the 22nd largest firm here in, in the United States. And I have insisted on doing after action reviews, trying to get them inside the culture, which is really different in a 1400 person firm, mm. but at least we're doing them on jobs that have gone south. Okay. So I end up doing a lot of after action reviews on jobs that we just butchered. We, and, and most of the errors that we make, we didn't spend enough time up front diagnosing the problem. We just jumped right into the work, which is always a mistake. Right. We spend no time on diagnosis. It's like if you went to a heart surgeon and said, Doc, I think I need heart surgery. Oh, hop up on the table, Ron. No test, no MRI, no CAT scan, no EKG, nothing. Just, you know, and then we get in there and the thing's a mess and we wonder why, um, you know, we spent so much time on it. And so it's really important to do the after action reviews, I think. Start on jobs that go south because you do know. But the last thing I want to do to my team is come in with timesheet data and, you know, come in after the war and bayonet the wounded. Well, you spent you spent three times more on this than we projected. You know, what, so what? It, mm. There could be a million reasons for that. I mean, one, you give me stuff that I'm not trained to do. So maybe I need more training. Or you've piled my plate so high, I, I didn't make the right trade-off. You know, some other partner came in with a rush job or whatever. Um, this is why people lie on timesheets. They fudge on timesheets. They eat time. Uh, you know, we think the timesheets are accurate. They're not. How can you possibly account for every six minutes of your day? How can you possibly it's do that? It's interesting. It's interesting um, because I said at the beginning, I have been having some great success with, with value pricing on one-off projects. And that... When you get uh, the prospect of a one-off project for a client, um, if you're value pricing it correctly, you will force yourself to think about what you've got to do for that client um, very carefully. And um, I, you know, I found myself doing that so that I, well, A, you establish the value, you find out what's gonna be of value to that client, and then B, you've, automatically told yourself what you're going to need to do not in terms of hours but in terms of value and and then you come up with the the the, the value price projects which as i said i've i've had some astonishing mm. success with so it kind of it's if you do it right i suppose it's 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 self-fulfilling yes i mean price is the number one driver of profit period. I mean, more than efficiency gains, more than rainmaking. Um, and if you price things right and, you know, at a good price, that's commensurate with value, then you can take the extra time with the customer that might need a little bit more handholding or coaching or comforting through a tough time, whatever. We're not selling time anymore. We're not focused on the time. Mm. You know, this idea that if we do things quicker, we'll be more profitable is a huge myth. Our costs for, for technology, for, for human capital, for the rent that we pay on our buildings. These are these costs exist from a cash basis I'm talking about, irrespective of how they're utilized. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. so whether or not your, your, your accountants are spending five or 10 hours on a particular customer, your cash costs are no different. So when you model cash, you, you get rid of this fuzzy thinking of allocating costs. And so that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Now, Nigel, what, what do you think John uh, can or should do to engage with his fellow owners and the team in terms of actually dropping the, 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 the timesheet? process within the firm having gone through that i'll come to you again on that one as well luke after nigel's done said his piece i think um surveying them was uh, definitely a good thing to do to get the feedback and then uh, having a sort of dialogue in the um all firm meetings about you know what we're going to do and when we're going to do it Mm. Um, we did make some mistakes one thing that i didn't realize was that there are a small number of people and i mean small number of people certainly less than five percent in fact, we only had one in our firm who actually see um, timesheets as um, and them recording the time as their justification of them um, of of you know their job. That's how they justify their existence in a way. Um, and taking uh, timesheets away from that lady actually caused her an enormous amount of stress, and she actually left. Right. Um, and we ha- we haven't recognised that at all. Mm. Um, so um, you have to be a little bit careful about that. Also, um, one of my co-directors who um, um, was um, one of the the highest biller. Um, a, a price highest and he was wedded to timesheets and he used to um, see his clients um, after um, at the end of the year because he'd be price myself, and give them all an extra bill based on time yeah. um, and um, a, a couple of years later lost his, last, his largest client that I'd saved for him once um, by doing exactly the same thing it was mm-hmm. a, a, a well in excess of 100k fee um, but um, so uh, we I not timesheets off on such and such a day or the team's really delighted three months later i found out that you know who it is paul horse but i better not say his name just in case you put it in the thing it makes the final cut um, um, three months later i found out in the notes area of the uh, of the software that we was using he'd been recording time and carried on doing the same basis um, I, I went absolutely ballistic with him, and I, and he stopped doing it except on his probate jobs. Which I thought, okay, that's allowable. Um, and uh, and if you'd have gone, gone back to him after about a year after that and said, um, you need to you need to go back to re- recording time, he, he completely flipped and became the absolute advocate yeah. of the way that the way that we were we were doing it. Um, you know, but that's another. A typical trait of typical accountants they hate change and then when they get to the, the new norm then they hate changing from the new norm yeah but I, I do wonder though Nigel if it's a bit like I remember my father giving up smoking and um, yeah. and he, he stood up in front of us and, and got a roll of sellotape and, 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 and smoked one one puff off the first cigarette out and then sell, put, put the whole sellotape with us sat around him said right I'm never smoking ever again and and I've never seen anyone rant at people who smoked after. after yeah. being, so he, he, he flipped. It's that you know, almost that road yeah. to Damascus piece, maybe. Uh, um, very good. So Luke, what what are your thoughts in terms of John's conflict conversation with the team? But I'm I'm, I'm thinking more more about his fellow you know the fellow directors. Yeah, well, you know we've we've had nine or ten years of of not having them and. You know, margins are margins are fine on a on a pooled basis. You know, it's all it's all good. It's it's been a it's been a great journey. You know, I've got a lot of appreciation for for, for all the literature and, and everything else. I mean, Paul knows that I don't believe in democracy, so you know, a benevolent <laughs> dictatorship is the way forward. And I would just tell them it's happening. Um, but um, there's in terms of practical 
solutions, you do get comfortable with not knowing what's going on. Um, I, I think where we are is, you know, we haven't, uh, under a significant amount of pressure because growth is coming very fast and we're not coping well with that. Um, and, and so saying to people, you know, and I will say to them, because it is a benevolent dictatorship, but you, you know, we, we, we will go, right, well, what do we do and what are we doing wrong and blah, 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 blah. Um, but actually, it's a resource thing. We just haven't got enough people in the in in the right places to, to get capacity issue. done. And I, yeah, yeah. And if 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 we get to a point, it, I think with you guys, as long as you've got some internal non-client facing people, because we we don't really have anybody that doesn't do client work, um, because we all enjoy what we do. You know, with most of my conversation, I'm on the board of lots of the businesses, and it's all lots of fun. Um, actually you need someone who knits it all together and, and monitors it and understands it and, and that's the investment mm. and the point I was making earlier is is the cost of that investment and the risk less or more than going back to the crutch you know that's the, the timesheet yeah. yeah 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 that's yeah. the two sides of that yeah um, and it's certainly a quicker fix but um, you know it, well, I'll see what they say tomorrow at breakfast. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, see what happens. Um, so, but I, I, John, there's no reason not to do it, and and everybody that I know that has, um, has has made more money as a result of mm, doing it. Mm. Um, it may just be that when you hit certain growth points, I think I don't think growth is is a straight line. Growth is spiky. Mm. and it's identifying that and, and when you're going to hit that spike yeah and, and actually manage that capacity piece which I think is uh, is, is the point you're making Luke so I'm going to mm. come back to Luke, John and Nigel for their final comments and what, what I want you to think about is what, what is it about this discussion today that stood out of being of most value uh, but before we get to that uh, Ron is there any any final thoughts or, or insights that you think are relevant to our conversation today uh, yeah, just one. Um, you know, there's value pricing 1.0 out there, which we've been talking about and teaching since the 90s. There's value pricing 2.0. And 2.0 blows up all of this. It blows up the change request. It blows up the fixed price agreement. It blows up everything. And that's the subscription business model. Mm. And it also changes what we measure. The income statement, the gap income statement looks different very different on a subscription business model. That's a firm with annual recurring revenue. Mm. And I do believe that that is the firm of the future. Mm. It's gonna be subscription based and that's gonna mean for us probably fewer customers at a higher price, but basically you tell them whatever you need, mm. you're covered. Mm. Whatever we can do under our roof, you're covered. If we can't do it, mm. we'll go quarterback with a firm or an expert who can do it. Mm and will shepherd that relationship through to the end result. Um, to me, it's a more sane way to run mm -hmm. a professional firm. I mean, the subscription economy is literally a tsunami around the world, mm -hmm. around the world. Most unicorns are subscription-based. Most growth during the pandemic has been subscription-based. Uh, businesses that have weathered the pandemic really well have been subscription-based. And we already have a model inside professional firms to do this. Mm. Now, I know you guys don't have this in the UK, but they're concierge medical practices and direct primary care medical practices. So general physicians over here 
no longer take insurance and they charge their customers anywhere from $100 a month to $5,000 a month, depending on, you know, who their segments are. Uh, some go after just CEOs. Um, and they basically say for anything medically that you need and a GP can usually handle somewhere between 60 and 80% of your medical needs, not everything, mm -hmm. but for what you do need, you're covered. You break a leg, you need stitches, you're covered. Mm. And we can do the same thing. Yeah. And it's uh, much saner, much less friction, much less bureaucracy, much less paperwork. Mm. You don't have to go through these annual FPA discussions. You just focus on where the customer is now and where do they want to be in the future and how can we guide that transformation. And that's an ongoing, continuous process. And that just doesn't happen once a year. I mean, people are videos, not pictures, right? We're constantly learning and changing and our client customers are changing. Um, and so I'm really excited about the possibilities of VP 2.0. Mm. And that just makes everything we talked about today completely obsolete. Mm. Very good. Thank you very much, Ron. So, guys, what's uh, of, of everything we've talked about today, what, what, what should that have been of, of most value to you and your firm? Uh, Nigel, can we start with you and then we'll do John and, uh, and Luke? Um. Um, I'm, I'm not sure there is um, 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 something that I, it, I that is new to me. I, uh, the name of the document that um, that Ron is using that, um, um, and the four steps is something. Obviously, we do um, reviews, um, but um, I um, I've not had heard it called what Ron called it, and I and, and we don't use these exact four steps. But I um, I really um, like that um, that process because it's just um, uh, uh, simple yeah that um, after action review piece yeah yeah I, I like I, I like him to have these debates because I think it is uh, it's interesting yeah yeah I, I, I feel that um, perhaps Luke hasn't asked himself the right um, question um, what to, do you think that right question is then Nigel I, I, I think you should say, what is the issue that you're trying to address, not should I get rid of timesheets? Mm. Fair. Okay. Thank you, Nigel. John, what's been of uh, most value to you? Um, definitely uh, the, the phrase, don't focus mm. on profit per job, because that's, <laughs> that's been sort of one I've been wrestling with yeah. for a while. And, and of course, yeah, the, the after action reviews. Um, uh, most certainly, I think those are um, those are. I can see those are going to be very powerful. Yeah, and it's tools. about how to in implement uh, and introduce that, isn't it? In terms of, and, and, and again, a little bit like Luke's yeah. issue in terms of, did you do, you do all forty every uh, every quarter or every month? Uh, probably not. It's actually which ones do we do first? Which ones do we do most often? Is going to be the issue, I guess. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. Those are kind of the the replacement yeah. for timesheets, yeah, yeah, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's very that's those those have been the Thank valuable you, points for today. We need more resource. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that could be the issue. <laughs> um, it's not blood from a stone, but oh, I don't want more people. Um, so <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent swayed, and you know, I, I, I think there's, I've asked, there are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons not to, to do it, to, to not go back, right? Because it's been lovely over the last eight or nine years to, to, to not know. Um, I think 
Yeah, I, I, well, we're just in that next stage of development of the business, and um, mm. it's whether or not, you know, I've got the energy, bearing in mind everything else that I've got going on, and, and how do we how do we put something in place that other people can run, you know, and how do we find those good people to run it, you know, that's the, because the, the model is the, is very good, you know, otherwise we wouldn't, I wouldn't have read all those books. Yeah. Um, you know, um, it's just um, another leap of faith on the money, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's the, the next thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ron, Ron. And, and Luke, yeah. just let me say that the issue I think you're confronting is, you know, you need more capacity and traditionally, professional firms across all professions have put revenue before capacity. And that can get dangerous when you're starting to grow because we think, well, I'm not going to hire somebody until everybody's at full tilt here. Uh, if we've got you know an extra 5% capacity, we're just going to work everybody harder before we bring on a new person. And I actually think you should put capacity before revenue because you'll be amazed when you have the capacity, opportunities will just spring up. And not just from new customers, but from your existing customers. If Imagine if your dentist ran at full 100% capacity. You'd be quite upset if you had a toothache and you called him. He said, yeah, well, we can fit you in in three weeks. Hmm. We should always have spare capacity for those last-minute, high-value jobs and we don't think about that enough. And that's what I mean by good project management, good capacity planning. Yeah. What a brilliant way to finish. Uh, Ron, I can't tell you how uh, uh, proud I am that you've said yes to this. It's been um, uh, an education as it always is. Luke, uh, John, Nigel, you all know how much I hold you in high regard. So thank you to you too. Um, gentlemen, I think this has proved to be an extremely valuable conversation. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, everyone. Cheers, Paul. Cheers, Ron. Nice Thank to you. see you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. You too. Take care. I'll see you in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you look even more knackered than you do, Nigel, and uh, Rod will still look the same. Still exactly. Very annoying. <laughs> um, brilliant. I really appreciate the offer about you sharing that After Action Review piece, uh, Ron. I will then forward yeah. it onto the chaps and put, put it into our show notes of this with your And permission. you guys, if you go out to thesoulofenterprise.com, which is my podcast or radio show, actually, that I do with Ed Kless from Sage, we have an archive tab. And if you go to show number 15, we have over 300 shows, but you'll see them all on the archive page. Go to show 15, and that's the show the best learning tool ever which is the after action review check out the show notes and at the bottom there's a link to the agenda it's a microsoft word document so you can tweak it for your own firm your Brilliant. own culture but ed worked on that and did a really nice job with it and if you're interested in why cost accounting and customer profitability is the wrong thing check out shows 66 and 112 and we interviewed Dr. Reginald Lee, who wrote the book Lies, Damn Lies, and Cost Accounting, and has just destroyed cost accounting. And again, he's an engineer, not, a, not an accountant. And then if you're interested in trashing the timesheet and all the things that go into it, show number 119. Uh, uh, we, we cover that in depth. So, Ron, thank you very much. John, thank you. Nigel, thank you. And Luke, thank you very much for being so open today. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm brave. And Luke, Luke. I didn't expect yeah. to, to yeah. be able to persuade you in an hour, so keep pressing. Still some work to do. Thank you, gentlemen. Enjoy your evenings. It's been really good. Cheers, guys. Thank you. See you. Thanks, Paul. All right. Brilliant. Thank Bye -bye. you. Everyone. Thank you.
you'll find more valuable discussions with the leaders of ambitious accounting firms at humanisethenumbers.online. You can also sign up to be notified each time a new podcast is made available. This podcast series, Humanise the Numbers, has been made possible thanks to the support of our sponsors, My Workpapers, Advanced Track, Satago and VFD Pro. Visit humanisethenumbers.online, click the logo of each sponsor, and you'll hear what our podcast interviewees have to say about the sponsor's services.